You can go ahead and be turning to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to finish chapter 10 today. So most of you know this. I work at ETSU. Most of y'all attend ETSU. If you don't attend ETSU or work at ETSU, there's this place right outside where I work. I work in the library. Right outside, there's this big area where they built this teeny tiny little fountain for the space that should have been there. I'm going to move this mic, Tim. So I'm going I'm to knock it over if I don't move it. Um, they built this fountain in this area, and it's called Warchuck Plaza. Um, and, and if you've been on campus this semester particularly, it seems like I've seen a lot more of this this, this semester. Um, there have been a lot of people frequent Borchuk Plaza and use that as a place where they can communicate with the masses, right? So, so you've got this, this big open area with lots of students moving in and out. If you get there at the right time, usually around, what, the 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock class change period, that's going to be the busiest time of the year. Lots of people moving through that area. And so lots of people have taken to letting that place be the place where they're going to go and they are going to, in most cases, preach, right? A lot of preachers. Sometimes not preachers. Sometimes that's just the place where all the frats will go and they'll use chalk and they'll draw something advertising their big fundraiser that's coming up. But that's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about the preachers who like to show up and they like to start loudly because they have a big forum proclaiming their beliefs, right? And if you have been there this semester in particular, it has gotten really heated really quickly a couple of times. Um, Even to the point that now there's one guy who comes, and when he comes, campus security puts like a barricade around him so that people can't get to him and so that he has kind of his own little space with which he can... He can kind of shout what he's saying and yell and that sort of thing. And, and, and the students obviously don't like it. A lot of the students, they yell at them and they argue back and forth and, and, and they kind of debate and all of this and that happens. And then they'll go walk around complain to their, their fellow classmates, that sort of thing. Uh, where I'm in the library and that's usually happening right around the time that all of my coworkers are taking lunch. Um, I usually get to hear what my coworkers think about it as well. And the reviews are typically not that positive. Right? It's usually, man, those people are just spewing a bunch of hate today. Man, there's a bunch of hate out there. Man, I cannot believe that that guy said this thing. And a lot of time, and some of the time, I'm not going to say all the time because I'm not usually out there. I don't usually have the time to actually listen to what these guys are saying. I know some guys have been out there and they've said some pretty bad stuff. They've said some pretty mean stuff, some mean-spirited stuff. I don't know, I wasn't out there. I'm just telling you what I've heard has been said, what I read in, uh, on a couple of news articles about the people that have been there. But, but the problem is that not always these guys out here that are yelling are yelling bad theology, right? In fact, they're kind of saying a lot of the same sorts of things that we talked about last week when Daniel was reading a few verses before in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Lots of warning of judgment if you run from God, if you, if you reject God, if you, if you flee from God, if you, if you blaspheme God, you are welcoming God's judgment upon yourself. You are welcoming His wrath, and that's what's going to happen to you. And that's a lot of what these guys tend to be saying. They're targeting the sin in the lives of the people on campus, and they're saying, 
God is going to hold you accountable for the things that you do. Maybe it's not necessarily the method that I would love, but that is truth, right? If you sin, if you, if you stray from the will of God, God is going to judge you for your sin. Because God is holy, God is righteous, and, and, and we, apart from Jesus, have nothing of our own merit that we can do to attain the favor of God. Right, right. We, we will be punished for who we are because we are broken, because we are wicked. And that's basically what the message these guys are, are, are shouting primarily consists of. It's just the judgment. Now, granted, I think that kind of misses the target, which is let's get to Jesus. But, but they're out there proclaiming all this judgment and they're, and they're really riling up a lot of people on campus, especially people that don't believe, don't know, don't love Jesus. They're going to react negatively to somebody who says, you are going to be judged for the things that you do, right? I mean, if, if, if any of us are told, you're going to be judged for this, your initial reaction is probably going to be something like, I don't like hearing that. That is not a message that I want to welcome, you know. So I have to, I'm sitting in my office, usually with my headphones on. If you've ever been by my office, I know Ben has, You'll walk up and you'll just see me with my headphones on in my own little world, trying to ignore all of the things that go on around me. But I still hear when my coworkers are talking. And there's a lot of talk of, man, I can't, those guys are out here again. Who are those guys? Why are they saying the things they are? I don't like hearing that. That is so. And then on occasion, I'll be walking with my coworkers as we go past them. They'll be like, man, what is that guy talking about? And I'm sitting here thinking, I know what that guy's talking about. And I have a decision to make, right? right? Do, I, do I align myself with the supposed crazy person who's yelling in the middle of Borchuk Plaza? Or do I separate myself from them entirely? Or is there some sort of hybrid in the middle where I can kind of say, well, he's saying all these things, but there's more to it than that. That's probably the step I should take. I typically choose silence because I am a wuss. I think wuss is a good wuss. We'll go with wuss. Wimp, whichever you prefer whichever you're more comfortable with. But I have to realize that if I align myself with somebody who's out here proclaiming judgment on sin, which I believe in, that I am welcoming the distaste of the people that I work with all the time. Right? I have to, I have to face the, I don't know if guilt's the right word, the supposed guilt, the the, the shame that accompanies being associated with the mean guy who stands out barricaded and yells at students all day. Right? That, that, is, that is one of the hazards of my job if I am going to side with Jesus. I'm going to be, rightly or wrongly, lumped in with whatever any of these guys say. Because they claim to be speaking from the same book that I claim to be governing my life by. And what we're going to talk about today in Hebrews, is a very similar situation. He's going to talk about how if you are going to align with Jesus, not only might you be publicly ridiculed, but you are going to be lumped in with people that have absolutely no love in the eyes of the world. Like they're going to say, you're one of them, and you're going to have to face the, the frustration that comes with being paired with people that no one in the world likes. Because let's face it, if you go by Borchuk, 
when the right guy's out there and the right group of people have wandered by, nobody likes that guy. Whoever that guy is, nobody likes him. He's just yelling. They're yelling back. They're not even listening. It, it, is, it, is, not, it is not a debate. It is a shouting match. Nobody likes that guy, which means I have to ask myself, do I really want to be linked with that guy? Because if I'm going to claim Jesus to my coworkers, that's who I'm going to be grouped in with. So, so where does this leave me? Where does this leave us? Do we find ourselves saying, I need to make sure I separate myself entirely from somebody who is, who is disliked publicly? Or do I need to welcome that? Do I need to welcome being grouped in with them, even though it might hurt my reputation? Even though it might make it more difficult for me to make friends with people on campus, with coworkers, or with whoever? Because I'm grouped in with somebody that is genuinely disliked by the world. I mean, you could even ask the question, should I feel guilty instead that I'm not doing the exact same thing that he is, in a sense? Shouldn't, shouldn't I be out there saying the exact same thing? If I think that he's not saying it right, should I not be saying it better? We could all ask ourselves that question too, and we probably wouldn't like the answer that we come up with, because the answer that we come up with is probably also going to leave us feeling uncomfortable about the state in which we find ourselves. I won't have any friends if I do that. Well, which friends do you want, really? You know, do you want the ones that are going to hate you because you talk about your love for Jesus? Is that really how we should define ourselves? Should we be identified by? how well we're received in the world, or should we be identified by Jesus? When people see us, should they see Jesus and, I, and associate us with who he is? So let's go ahead and jump in here to Hebrews chapter 10. And we'll just go ahead and read the rest of chapter 10. We're going to pick up here in verse 32. And just remember what he was talking about last week, right? The author was in here and he was talking about judgment. The day is drawing near. The time of reckoning is coming. And those people who have fleed from God are going to be destroyed. And it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be good for them because they have rejected God. Then he says this, but, in verse 32, this is a good one. Whenever you see but, right after you've had a whole paragraph about judgment, you can probably assume this is a good paragraph. But, recall former days when after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This sounds really good so far, right? Right? Okay. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. I think he begins by really trying to provide a little bit of relief 
Because he just had this really heavy paragraph where he's talking about all this judgment. If, if, you, if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This sounds bad. This is, this is, this is upsetting. This should be scary. And, I, and I, I would venture to guess that as he's preaching this sermon to the people or, or they're reading this letter, that, that they're sitting there thinking, oh man, is that me? I'm kind of terrified. I don't want that to be me. But he says, but recall former days after you were enlightened. He's like, but let me, let me separate. You've already heard this, right? You have, you have heard this gospel before and you have received this gospel before. But that word there where he's saying you were enlightened, that is a similar word that he's used in the past to refer at least having heard the truth of the gospel. You, you've, you've, in your head, you have understood the truth of the gospel. But, but what we've already talked about is just having heard and understood the truth of the gospel does not necessarily translate directly to you're in the body of Christ, you're saved, right? Because we've talked about a lot of people hear the gospel, but not everybody has their life changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they become one with the body of Christ. So there's a difference between just hearing, receiving, and actually having it overcome you, overtake you, make you into a new person, bring you back from death to life. So immediately, right after he says, after you were enlightened, he goes on to qualify. What separates you? What, what, what makes you look different than the people who have gone on sinning deliberately? Right? And he's going to lay out four ways, four ways that they had been tried. Four specific trials that these people had gone through. Um, so we'll pick up right here. Well, I'll go ahead and start. I'll read verse 32. But recall in former days, after you enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly approached, exposed to reproach and affliction. If I could read today, this would go a lot better. Um, so they faced public ridicule, real persecution, right? But this was something they should have expected. This should not have come as a surprise. If you were here, if you are at CRC when we went through Acts, the whole church has always been persecuted. The church grows best when it is being persecuted. In fact, they should have seen this coming. If you want to, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 10. And when you get there, you may hold your place in Matthew, because we're going to jump back and forth between Hebrews and Matthew a little bit this morning. See here. Matthew chapter 10. If you want to jump to verse 16, I'll give you just a second to get there. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Go ahead and jump down to verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? What Jesus is saying here is, I'm sending you out and people are not going to like you. Look at what happens to me. I come, I talk about this new covenant, this new, this new way that God is finally going to fix this whole sin problem. 
and they say that I'm of the devil. How much more are they going to do to you who just follow me? You're not me. You don't have the political capital that, he, that Jesus has built up. You have nothing. So if you claim him, they're going to do so much more. And, 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 and we see this, right? We see people go out, claim the name of Jesus, just like in Borchuk. These people come out, claim the name of Jesus, claim that they follow the Bible, and what happens? They're publicly ridiculed. The Johnson City Press writes articles talking about the riot that they tried to cause in the middle of campus. They, they talk about the, the horrible things that these people were saying to, to innocent students, right? I mean, if you were here when we were going through Acts, what was the primary... This is a question. This is a question. There's a question mark at the end, so you get to answer this. What was the primary catalyst for the initial taking of the gospel outside of Jerusalem? Say it. Say it. You're, you're about to say it. Persecution. Acts chapter 8. Saul was ravaging the church, and so people ran. And it says, when they ran, they took the gospel with them, and the church began to grow. People got to know Jesus. Persecution is the catalyst that spreads the church out around the world. So what, so what the author here in Hebrews is reminding them is, you faced persecution, but you should have known that this was coming. Right? Persecution was going to come. The guy that we believe in was murdered for saying the things he did. This is going to happen. And you endured hardship and suffering and reproach and affliction. So that's number one. They faced public ridicule and persecution. Number two, they felt the pain of identification with the church. Right? So we're in verse 33. It says, it describes them as sometimes being partners with those so treated. So, so maybe you're not being persecuted right now. But, but just like if I side with the people who preach out at Borchuk, I'm being lumped in with these people who are being hated by the people on campus. If you associate yourself with Jesus, you're being associated with his followers. And if his followers are being hated, you're being associated with them. You will lose your, I don't want to say street cred, that'd be so lame. Paul would say it, but I, I am not cool enough to say that you will lose your street cred. See? You laugh when I say it. I can't say it. I can't say it. What, what's, a, what's, a really, what's a really lame way to say that? You'll be less popular. Yeah, you'll lose your social life. You will, you will be less popular. You'll be more disliked because you have sided with Jesus, because there are going to be other people out there who... who in the world's eyes, make you look bad. And you're going to be challenged, and they're going to say, what are you going to do about this guy? What's your response to the guy who's out here saying that all these people are going to hell? That's a fun question. What do you say to that? It's probably true. It's probably true. And then what does that say? Then, then you're right in there with them. Then you're in there getting all the, the public ridicule and everything just like them. You, you, you have to feel, you, you end up, he says, you have felt the guilt, the shame, even though there shouldn't be real guilt and shame, but, but the supposed, the, the cultural guilt and shame that comes from associating with people who are claiming the name of Jesus. It's just like, it's just like being associated 
with your dad when you're 13 and he says something embarrassing in front of your friends, right? We've probably all experienced that. Your dad walks in, oh, I see you playing the video games there, or something like that, and you're like, Dad! But he's your dad and you're associated with him, so now all of your friends are thinking, man, that guy's lame, listen to his dad. Not that that ever happened to me, and whenever dad listens to the recording of this, I don't mean you, this is purely an example. But it's that same kind of feeling, right? You're being associated with somebody who is doing something that makes other people feel uncomfortable. Other people feel uncomfortable because they're being challenged because of the sin in their life. And you're now being lumped in with the person who's doing that. Rightly so. We should be associated with those people because that's who we are. We are the church and we believe the same book, hopefully, that that guy's preaching. If he's not, we should do something about it. But if he's saying stuff that's truth, we shouldn't be afraid to say, well, that, that, that's probably truth. I mean, think about, think about some examples of people that have been faced with the do I side with or do I separate from, right? Peter is the perfect example of this, right? Jesus has been, has been arrested and taken to stand trial. And Peter's kind of following at a distance. And a little girl says, hey, weren't you with him? He says, no way, kid, you're crazy. No, no, go away, you're a kid. No, I don't know him. I'm scared of a little girl. Because he doesn't want to be associated with Jesus. Jesus even told him, you're going to deny me. You aren't going to, you're not going to persevere. You're going to have your opportunity. People are going to ask you, and you're going to deny deny me three times. He does, and what happens? Wrecks him. Absolutely wrecks him. But we are given a glimmer of hope, right? Because just because he failed does not mean that Jesus wasn't willing to welcome him back, to restore him, and to say, yeah, you did that. But you're not going to do it again. You're going to be my guy. right? So there's hope for us. So so if we've we've denied our association, if we've separated ourselves from somebody who's actually speaking truth just for the sake of our own reputation, that doesn't mean that all hope is lost. We're not now in this first group where where we go on sinning deliberately and there's no hope for, for the forgiveness of sins. We're not just... That doesn't by default drop us into that group. There is still hope. Jesus still welcomed Peter back even though he denied him. There's still hope for you and for me. So, so the author's saying you faced persecution. You've been associated with the people who faced persecution. And then they were sympathetic. This is number three. They were sympathetic to friends who were in prison. Their best friends were thrown in jail. If you read... Um, Acts chapter 12, Peter was in prison. And what does it say the whole church was doing? The whole church got together and was praying for him. Now, if you, know, if you read, read on through the whole story, Peter gets out and they're like, oh, Peter's at the door. Is he really? No, surely that's not Peter. No, Peter got out. Why? Because we prayed for him. But, but they, had to, they had to deal with the struggle of having friends who were taken away from them, put in prison, and they had to suffer through the separation. That, I mean, think about this. People's, people's fathers, people's mothers, maybe people's children, brothers, sisters, were being taken away and thrown in jail because they were associating themselves with the church. Yeah, that, that's bad for the person who's being thrown in jail. But that's also bad for the family who's left back there. What if it's, what if it's the father? What if it's the husband who's, who's taken, thrown in jail? And he was the one who was providing for the family. 
This is yet another form of suffering. When, you, when you're being associated with people who are being thrown in jail and you can no longer necessarily make your living, find your food. This is, this is not a good situation. This is not something that we would genu- generally welcome. We'd say, I, I hope that somebody I know that I'm really close to goes to prison. If you do, let's pray for that person afterwards. But... But that's the kind of situation they found themselves in. They were, they were either being persecuted themselves, they were being lumped in with people who were being persecuted, those people that were important to them were being thrown in prison, or their property was being plundered. That's at the end of that same verse. You had compassion on those in prison, this is verse 34, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So their property was plundered. They, they lost their stuff. Man, they took my Xbox. They took my iPad, my, my MacBook. They took my MacBook backpack. No, don't take it. No, don't take it. Man, they took my Keurig. I don't know. I'm trying to think through whatever idols we have. They took my pumpkin coffee creamer. Oh, it got real. It just got real. Somebody comes and takes that from you. Somebody comes and takes your car. Somebody comes and, and breaks into your house and takes whatever that one thing is. That, that really important thing, that, that piece of jewelry that was given to you by your mother or your grandmother or her grandmother to her to you. They take that. What's your reaction? Frustration, anger. You want to get it back? You want to get back at them? You want to make sure? How many of you rejoice when that happens? I would not. I would not. But what does it say here? It says, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. This is what it looks like to be in the church. That you joyfully accept the plundering of your property. And I'm going to take a little aside just for a minute. Just while we're talking about this idea of joy. This idea of of joyfully accepting something that otherwise should leave us angry or or whatever. I want to to talk a little bit about joy. Because if you were here for for prayer night, and I, I know Daniel wrote a prayer card. And if you were here for prayer night, hopefully you saw that prayer card that just said, pray for joy. We want to see more joy in our lives, in the life of this church. And I think he would say it again, I would probably say, I think this is one of those spiritual gifts that all of us, all of us need to ask the Holy Spirit to give us a little bit more of. Because I would love to see more joy in the life of this church. Not happiness. I'm not saying happiness. We got a bunch of happy people. Right? I want to see, I want to see, I want to see genuine joy. So, so when I say joy, what do I mean? What is joy? Joy is not an emotion. Right? Joy is a gift of the Spirit. You aren't rejoicing over the plundering of your property unless the Holy Spirit works in you. To give you a heart that rejoices because you're being lumped in with the church that Jesus is building. And thus you are losing your property. You don't rejoice unless that is put in you 
by the Holy Spirit. That's just not a natural reaction. If your stuff gets taken, if you're thrown in prison, you're going to be angry, except if the Holy Spirit is in you. Except if Jesus is making you more like Himself. That word joyfully here in this text, when I just went and did a big broad search of every time that Greek word is used in the New Testament. And I'm not going to read all like 75 verses that it's in. But I will tell you this. In general, it is associated with ideas like, I found a hidden treasure and I rejoiced because I found a hidden treasure. Or, this person was dead and now they're alive and we rejoiced over that. Or, or I was a wicked sinner and then I met Jesus and I rejoiced over that. If you were to get a reward, if you were to get a call from, this is, this, is, this is for the students, if you were to get a call from ETSU Financial Aid and say, you don't have to pay another dime, your school's going to be free, we're going to put you in the best dorm on campus, um, we're going to get you a meal plan, but this meal plan lets you eat at Ruby Tuesday across the street. Um... We're going to pay for your gas, wherever you, you know, what's your reaction to that going to be? Right? Hopefully it's not going to be, well, now I'm going to have to pay taxes on all that. (laughs) I don't think that's going to be your reaction. I think your reaction is going to be genuine excitement. You're going to rejoice over that. Oh, man, this has made my day, week, month, whatever. That's small compared to what it means to know Jesus. And if we truly know Jesus, if we can truly understand, if we can truly take what Daniel talked about last week, all the, those warnings of judgment and pain and separation from God, and we can realize that that ought to be us. That's, who, that's the group we ought to be lumped in. Then I think our attitudes would change when we realize what it means that we have been made alive in Jesus. And if we've been made alive in Jesus, that ought, to, that ought to reveal itself. That ought to that ought to be noticeable all the time. Because we're always being saved by Jesus now, and we're always being taken away from what we should have gotten. This is some, it's not like only when we're reminded. We're constantly being saved by Jesus. And we ought to constantly be rejoicing. In that idea. So we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would, would fill our hearts with more joy. And that that joy would actually come out and be, and be noticeable to others. Because, because if other people realize what, what this idea of salvation has done in us, then they're going to want that. That is a, that is a contagion. If, if my stuff is taken and I'm super excited... I'm getting lumped in there right there with the rest of the church. Right? I'm getting, I'm getting to live out life the way the rest of my brothers and sisters around the world are. People can be like, man, that didn't happen to me and I still feel bad. You know, how are you able to do this? I want us to be more joyful. So, so what is joy not? We asked what joy is. What, is. what is joy not? It's not like manufactured happiness. Like you can tell... 
when somebody, you can probably tell if I come in here on a Sunday morning and I'm having a bad morning and I'm faking it, right? You can probably tell when somebody's being fake, especially if you're around them a little bit. You can tell when they're just kind of putting, basically any, any morning before 10 a.m. at work, I'm, if I smile at you, I'm probably faking it because if it's, if it's not 10, I'm still asleep. I'm sorry. It's like, you have said something to me and I have responded somewhat politely. But that is not me. That is, that is the shield that I have put up to keep you from seeing me for who I truly am, which is absolutely not a morning person. Right? But you can tell that I'm probably being fake, probably because I say, have a nice day like this. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. So joy is not something that you can manufacture. Right. Joy is something that just springs up from within you. And, and, and you can't really be joyful if you're like complaining about work or complaining about school or your study time. Or you can't really be joyful if, if you allow other circumstances in your life to, to pull you away from the life of the church. Right? Like if you're like, I would come, but I'm going to study. I would come, but I'm going to do this. I would come, but I have this one group meeting I have to go to, or I have a lot of work to do, or I have to go to work early tomorrow, and i got to get my eight hours of sleep in. It's really hard to be joyful when you're letting outside things affect what you do. We should be able to rejoice while we study. We should be able to rejoice while we work. We should be able to rejoice even while we're sleep deprived. We should be, that should be, that should be, we should be defined by we are joyful in spite of all circumstances because we know that whatever circumstance we're in is way better than where we ought to be. Way better than what we deserve. So where do I hope that we will see more joy manifest itself in the life of the church? Where do I want to see more joy? I want to see more joy in our conversations. Every conversation. I don't care what you're talking about. I don't care if your team lost yesterday, or your fantasy team's going to lose today, or you had a flat tire. I don't care what it is. If you are talking with somebody, you are still talking with somebody as one who has been saved by Jesus, brought back from the dead. I don't care what's going on. That's way better than dead and separated from God. So I want to hear more conversations rejoicing in the goodness of Jesus when we're talking to each other, we're talking to our friends, we're talking to our co- wherever. I would love to hear more conversations about how good everything is. Maybe, maybe you're in a situation, maybe, maybe you're at work, and you really would be in trouble if you tried to proselytize all of your coworkers. So maybe, maybe you do have to pick and choose your words carefully, but that doesn't mean you can't still have a joyful act and you can't rejoice knowing what Jesus has done for you in the way that you talk to everybody. There's no reason to complain to your coworkers. There's no reason to complain to your fellow students about how bad this thing is or how horrible this assignment is or, or how whatever. Whatever your situation is. I think when we talk to each other, we have to talk with more joy. Don't, okay, 
I was, I was putting this example in, and then I realized that not all of you are going to actually know this example, so I'm going to have to... Don't be Debbie Downer. Who has heard... Who has not heard of Debbie Downer? Thank goodness. I'm not as old as I thought I was. I was thinking, man, that was like nine or ten years ago when those skits started on SNL. There's this character called Debbie Downer. It was played by Rachel Dratch, and every time somebody would say something, she would just say something awful. While I was studying, we went and watched this one where they're at Disney, just as an example. They're at Disney World, and, and Pluto comes running up to take a picture with the group, and she says, man, it must be awful working at a theme park because you're constantly worried about the threat of a terrorist attack. <laughs> what? Don't be that person. We are not the person who looks at the, the glasses half empty. We are not the person who sees a situation and comes up with whatever the worst possible thing is and makes sure we talk about that because we just feel more comfortable when we're talking about the negative side of things. That's not who we are. We are people who ought to talk that way because we ought to be heading towards judgment. We ought to be heading towards death and destruction. And yet we're not because Jesus has overwhelmed us and brought us together as his people. And he's made us alive together. So joy should manifest itself in our conversation. It should manifest itself in our work ethic. I am real bad about this. I am real bad about getting bogged down with a monotonous, repetitive task that I get tired of doing over and over again. And it's really easy for that to then affect my conversation. Right? With my wife or with somebody at work, just be like, I am so tired of this. This is awful. Man, I can't stand that person that I have to work with. My work at I should I should we, we we've all heard this verse, but we don't technically we don't I don't think we really apply it that that do all of you do all that you do for the glory of God in all you do. Work with all your heart as if you're working for the Lord. Yeah, that's where we ought to be. That's what we ought to be doing. That's that's what our coworkers ought to see out of us. We ought to be the the ones who work the hardest. If you're in school, I'm not saying that means you're the one that makes absolutely the best grades, but you ought to be the one who, when you are in class, you are applying yourself as well as you can apply yourself. You're not, you're not distracting yourself with something else. You're not taking a nap. You're not tweeting, texting, whatever. I'm not looking at anybody in particular, but there are people who are trying not to make eye contact with me right now, and that kind of reveals you for who you really are. If you're at work, you ought to not be the person that people keep having to come back to and say, is this done yet? Is this done yet? Is this done yet? I'm a horrible procrastinator. Like, like, if I didn't procrastinate on it at least once, I probably haven't done it yet. Nothing gets done until I procrastinate it at least once. You'll get it later. Like, like, I can't work on something until I've pushed it to the side. At least once. Our work ethic. We should, we should be joyful about the fact that we get to do something. That we're even alive. Right? We should be able to rejoice as we're working. And, and, and this is one of the ones that, that you'd probably hear me harp on the most. Just because this is where I am. I would love to see more joy in our worship. I don't care if we're doing acoustic stuff like we're doing this morning. If we're doing really, really loud stuff like I always tend to pick because I like loud stuff and I can't hear anymore. 
Whatever kind of worship situation we find ourselves in, I think we could stand to be a bit more joyful. More than just sing. Now, and I know we don't necessarily know the words to new songs or whatever. There are lots of reasons that we don't, we don't let ourselves go during worship. But I think there's something to be said for when we read about worship, especially in like in the Psalms, it's talking about it being loud, joyful, bouncy, kind of like jumpy, movie around, kind of not, not, not quiet, reserved, worrying about being lumped in with the crazy people, right? Because that's probably what it is some of the times. Like, I don't want to be thrown in with the crazy bunch of people who jump around and over-worship. If I, wrote you, if, 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 if I wrote you a check for a million dollars, you would probably jump up and down just a little bit. You'd probably start calling people and be like, you've got to come see. You, this guy's giving out million dollar checks. You've got to be excited about this. That, that would be a natural reaction. That's what I wish our worship would be like. It's like we've been given a blank check. Because we're being welcomed into the kingdom of God here. I want our reaction, especially when we're worshiping, to balance with the weight of what we've been saved from. And I want, I want what we've been saved from to be reflected in the way that we sing, in the way that we give offerings. When we give offerings later on, in the way when we come up here, we take communion. I want our, our emotional response to all of these things to be genuine. Don't just come up and take communion because it's there. Come up and take communion and rejoice over the fact that Jesus died for you so that you can, with His church, take communion together, right? So that was an aside on joy. Sorry. That was actually one of the longer parts in my notes, but yeah. These are things that I want to see from us, though, by the way, that I I want to see more joy. I want to see more excitement over these things. And we're not being persecuted right now, right? At least I don't, not not in the same way that a lot of them were. This is at the same time that Rome is like carting people off just to kill them, you know? Nero's like lighting his parties with Christians that are on fire. Like, this is what they're going through. Like, he's like... It's a dark party out tonight. Let's light a few more Christians up so that we can see a bit better. This is what they're experiencing, and they're rejoicing. We're not. We should rejoice all the more, right? Or maybe we need to pray that God would do whatever it takes to give us a reason to actually act like His church. We should be joyful all the time because we know that we have a great reward to come. And that's what he says. You you joyfully welcome the plunder of your property because you knew you had something better coming. This doesn't matter. Your stuff, your health, your life, your time, whatever, none of this matters. You've got something, you've got eternity with the creator of everything to come. Why would, you, why would you waste your time worrying about things that are just going to pass away? Anyways.
And this is kind of the point of these last two paragraphs, the one Daniel preached on last week and the one that we're talking about here today. Is he's trying to set up this comparison. He's trying to contrast these two things. He's saying, there's a day, right? Remember we talked about how he capitalized that phrase, the day is coming? There's a day that is coming. A reckoning is coming. When? When? At that moment, you're either with Jesus or you are not with Jesus. And he wants us as the church to realize what you have been saved from and what you are being saved to. And you ought to rejoice in that. And you ought to not be defined by your relationships with crazy people or, or your comfort or your stuff. That, not, that ought not be what you are defined by. You ought to be defined by you are with Jesus. And the big question, and this is the question that he keeps coming back to, is, is how do you know which of those groups you're in? How do we know? Right? How do we know? And he keeps saying, those who endure are in. When do we know that we have endured? How do we know that we've endured? Because he keeps saying, you've already gone through all of this stuff. You've experienced all this stuff and you've remained faithful. You guys are enduring. How do we know? You can't know that you are enduring until you have endured. Does that make sense? Like, like you can't know you got there until you, you're at the end. And there's actually a Bible that backs this up. I told you to hold your place in Matthew. If you'll flip back over there. Matthew chapter 13 this time. I'm going to read this and then we're done. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24 through 30. So Jesus is in the middle of a lot of parables trying to explain how the kingdom of God works. He says, he put another parable for them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain... Then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first. And bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat to my barn. Okay. So. In this example. Jesus is saying. You got to wait. Till both of these things have grown up. Why. Why. Agriculturally speaking. Did he need to let them both grow up. Does anybody know the answer? Because when the weeds and the grain were growing together. You really couldn't tell the difference. You couldn't tell which one was which. It wasn't until they were fully grown. Fully budded. That you could say. Oh that's wheat. That's a weed. It wasn't until the very end when it was truly revealed for what it really was. And at that point, there could be a separation of the two. You'll know that you've endured when you get to the end and you have endured. I love the last verse in Hebrews. Because he said, this is... 
This is fantastic. He says, there's going to be some who shrink away. There's going to be some, some who get to stay with Jesus forever. And then he gets to verse 39. But we aren't those who shrink back. That's not us. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. If you have endured hardship, if you have gone through this, if you, are, if you are continuing to fight the battle with rain indoors, I'm not saying that just because you come to a church where it rains inside means you're saved. But if you're excited to be here, that says something about what God is doing inside of you because there's no reason that any of us should want to come to this building for church. And yet we keep coming. Yet He keeps bringing us back together. So I'm not going to say, I'm not saying because you go to church or because you go to community group or because you read your Bible or whatever it is, I'm not going to say that that makes you saved. But the more you're able to look back at your life and say, man, look at all these things that God has brought me through that I should not have wanted to continue on with Him during. And yet He has seen faithful to continue to bring me back to Himself and keep me fighting forward. That's how you know that you aren't one of those who shrink back because you haven't. You have endured. And that's where I want us to be. I want us to realize that, that a lot of us are still really young and we don't have a long life to look back on and say, look what I've gone through. So we have to realize that probably means we're right in the middle of it and we've got to continue on. We've got to persevere. We can't, we can't give up now. Because we've still got a long way to go. And the more we do this, the more we're going to be able to naturally have that joy spring up out of us. Because we're going to know even better how faithful God has been to us over the course of our lives. Because that's the cool thing about Him, is He is eternally faithful. He doesn't stop working. Peter gave up for a short while. But Jesus kept working and brought him back to and brought him back in. So I want us to pray as we're praying for two things. One, endurance. I occasionally try to run. I, I'm not very good at it. But the hardest thing for me to develop is endurance. Like running further and further. The only way you're going to be able to do that is to just do it. Right? The only way you're ever going to be able to run further for longer is to run further for longer. So I want us to pray that we would be given endurance and that we would be given opportunities to endure so that we have something to stake our faith on, to say, look, God has been faithful to me in bringing me through this. So I want us to pray, one, for that, and two, that as we are given opportunities that we can then look back and say, look at what Jesus has done in my life, that we would just rejoice in who He is, that we would celebrate Him and celebrate what He's done in our lives. And celebrate what He's doing in our church. Even when it's raining inside, we can rejoice because we are still the church. And we still deserve judgment, but He is still saving us and bringing us together. Let's pray. God, thank You for being faithful to us even when we have no reason to continue to be faithful. Like there's nothing inside of us that should be 
faithful to you. We are so broken and so powerless to do anything for ourselves. But thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for bringing us to yourself, bringing us in close, uniting us with the body of Christ. God, I just pray that where it is so easy for us to become distracted, so easy for us to take the easy way and, and not worry about the things of God and not worry about whatever challenges you may have in front of us or not worry about what our actual mission here on earth is. That you would, you would give us a sense that we cannot give up. We are not those who give in, those who quit. That we are those who will endure. We are those who will... We are those who will face head-on the challenges that, that living as Christians in this world puts in front of us. That we will, we will welcome those because we know that You are faithful to bring us through it. God, I just pray that You would grant our church a sense of, a sense of endurance that we could continue to fight for You through whatever it is. God, if, if we don't have anything that we're really fighting through because we're not really fighting for anything, I pray that You would put opportunities in our lives for us to endure. God, we talked about how in Acts, you grew your church by persecuting them. What, by whatever means you see fit to grow your church, I pray that you would do that. And I pray that we will rejoice all along knowing that you have saved us from something. I pray that that joy would, would come out as we're talking, as we're working, as we're studying, as we're singing. I just pray that you would give us hearts that rejoice over the goodness of who you are. And God, every time I'm up here, I pray this. Because God, I know that, that not all of us know that joy in this room. And God, I pray that you would open every heart to know that joy. That you would... You would you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit that we could see you for who you truly are and that we could rejoice in the knowledge that you have saved us. God, I pray that, that this time of worship that we're going to have as we finish up, that it wouldn't be fake, it wouldn't be manufactured, just because I said I want us to be more joyful. I want us to be more joyful because we're rejoicing because we have something to rejoice in. So God, bless this time of worship now. In Jesus' name, amen.